strike, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness lay. Up from the grave he Well, this morning's message is entitled Harbingers, Harbingers of Hope. See, in Australia, we would say Harbingers, but here it's Harbingers. And so when in America, do as Americans, Harbingers of Hope. Now, Harbinger is something that announces or signals the approach of something else. And when you come to the Bible, the Bible is replete with Harbingers whether they be in the form of a warning or simply as an outline of events that will unfold or are unfolding right before our very eyes. God's last hasn't left His children on planet Earth to stumble around in the dark with regard to the events taking place on planet Earth. He has given us His Word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The Word of God presents in clearest pictures the things that will take place prior to Jesus' return. Some of you may be familiar, while we're talking about Harbingers, some of you may be familiar with the novel that was written not too long ago that received a lot of attention. It was called The Harbinger, written by Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, a Messianic Jew. He says that it's a fictional story which is nevertheless concerned with a real-life connection. He says it's a connection, it's about a prophecy about ancient Israel that was eventually fulfilled in the 8th century, that's a fact, Uh, when Israel was destroyed, and certain events and facts related to the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the U.S. in 2001. Khan calls these events uh, and facts harbingers and argues that they show a connection between ancient Israel's destruction and a possible coming destruction of present-day United States. Now, even though the nine harbingers referred to in the book appear to be lacking biblical evidence, many are seeking in Khan's understanding of Bible prophecy, something to consider. And certainly, if a country fails to fulfill God's purposes and divine will, the one who sets up kings and takes down kings will allow that nation to pass from the stage of history to only be read about in history books centuries later. But what we need today, friends, 
It is not some fictional book guiding us and directing us. What we need is a clear understanding of the issues. And to gain a clear understanding of the issues, we must have a clear understanding of the prophetic word of God. Amen? Certainly. Now, what is America's destiny? Because that is the question looming large here uh, this morning. Will it end up being besieged and destroyed like Israel of old? Or does it have a different destiny, one that most have never thought about or even considered. The United States of America, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. This great nation was founded on the basis of freedom and quickly became a refuge from many parts of the people from many parts of the globe. This was a nation where the dream could be realized of having a church without a pope, and a nation without a king. And the Declaration of Independence contains these marvelous words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Even the currency makes the wonderful statement, in God we trust. God has certainly blessed America, and through it, it has blessed the entire world. Surely God was responsible for the founding of the United States. Lady Liberty, she stands there in New York's harbor, proudly proclaiming, give me your poor, give me your tired, your maddled, huddled masses, yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send those homeless tempest-tossed to me. I lift up my lamp beside the golden door. And this nation continues to profoundly affect what takes place on planet Earth today. And you could expect that with America having such a profound influence in the world today, you'd expect that the Bible would talk about the United States. Now, understand that the Bible doesn't talk about every nation on planet Earth. Uh, I'd have to disappoint a good friend of mine when I have to, I'd have to tell him when that New Zealand is not mentioned in the Bible. But Australia is mentioned in the Bible, for it says Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, you see. <laughs> now, the Bible doesn't talk about Peru. The Bible doesn't talk about South Africa. It doesn't talk about Fiji. It doesn't talk even about China. So why does the Bible talk about some nations and not other nations? The Bible brings into view those nations that have a direct impact on the people of God. For example, you have Abraham. Abraham, he came out of the Ur of the Chaldees. And so the Bible mentions Mesopotamia. It was through Abraham, God blessed him, and the Messianic line came through Abraham. You've also got Egypt, that nation from which Israel was born and would be a constant thorn in the flesh throughout the history of Israel. And then there was Babylon, who under Nebuchadnezzar besieged and destroyed Jerusalem. And Daniel and Ezekiel both lived there. You have the uh, joint empire of the Medes and the Persians who let the children of captivity go back to rebuild their nation. And then you have Greece who ruled over the region and greatly affected and in some ways influenced God's people to embrace certain erroneous beliefs. Rome who ruled during the time of Christ. We know Christ was nailed on a Roman cross and uh, his tomb was sealed with a Roman seal. And later on, you've got Asia Minor or Turkey. And then you've got Europe, uh, where the gospel was spread. These were all brought to light because they impacted God's people in a particular and in a certain definite way. Thinking about it this way, it would be surprising if the United States was not mentioned in the Bible. This is the first time in the history of the world that a nation was founded on a republic, on the principle of civil and religious liberty. And today, the United States is the sole world power, and everybody knows it. Writing in a newspaper in my home country, it is said that Americans should admit the truth and face up to their responsibility as the undisputed masters of the world. The fact is no country has been a dominant, as dominant culturally, economically, technologically, and militarily in the history of the world since the Roman Empire. Now, more than one person has described the United States as being the new Rome. 
Now, down here at the close of time, friends, the question of liberty looms large again. And as we ask this morning, and the Bible calls in response, will the United States of America, down here at the close of time, still allow freedom to ring? Now, most of us sitting here today know the answer to that question, but for those who will be viewing this later on, and for those of you who are sitting here who don't know the answer to that, I'm going to back up a little bit and give a little history, and then we're going to step into today and look at things that are happening today that are harbingers of hope things that are telling us Jesus is coming near. Now, John the Revelator, he was the author of the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation. He was under house arrest on the island of Patmos, a little pile of rocks in the midst of the beautiful clear waters of the Aegean Sea. And he wrote from his vantage point on the Isle of Patmos the following words, and they're found in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. John said, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, And I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns, ten crowns, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were the feet of a bear. His mouth was the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now a beast in Bible prophecy, what does that represent? The Bible says it represents a nation. You just go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 17 and 23. Daniel sees four beasts coming up out of the sea. You put them all together, they look like it's a composite beast that John saw here in Revelation 13. He sees him coming up, and the angel interprets and helps Daniel understand that the beasts represent kingdoms or nations. When we see the word beast in Bible prophecy, it's not an epithet, it's not a put-down, it's not an insult. Beast just simply represents a kingdom or a nation. Now, this small nation uh, mentioned here in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, is the same power mentioned in Daniel chapter 7 as the little horn. Uh, Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, called that power the man of sin. And so commentators and many people understand, Christians alike, understand that those entities all represent the same power and uh, those, uh, that power is none other than Vatican City. Now, they all understand that all three of these, the little horn, the beast power, the man of sin, all are the same thing, but there are a variety of different thoughts out there regarding what that is. But in a presentation that, uh, that I gave not too long ago, All the World Wonders, we gave 10 identifying features of that beast power. If you haven't, weren't here when, you, when, when I presented that message, I want to invite you to go back to our website and look for that message under our podcast, All the World Wandered. It gives you the 10 identifying features of this power. And that power can be none other than Vatic- the Vatican, Vatican City. Now, the Bible said that this small nation would be given power, it would be given seat, and would be given great authority. How did that happen? Well, the Vatican herself said in the American Catholic Quarterly Review, and meekly stepping to the throne of the Caesar, the vicar of Christ took up the scepter to which the emperors and kings of Europe were to bow in reverence through so many ages. Now, what happened was Constantine, he left Rome, and he relocated his seat to, uh, of the Roman Empire to Constantinople or Istanbul. There was a power vacuum that was left down there in Rome, and authority was given to the church of Rome, and they stepped into this breach, thus becoming a very powerful nation. question is, what would ultimately happen? Look at verse 3. It says, And I saw one of his heads as it were what? Mortally wounded. Now, jump down to verse 10. It says, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now, this is a prediction, friends, of when the papacy received a mortal, fatal wound, which occurred uh, in the year 1798, the conclusion of that great 1,260-year prophecy spoken of in the same chapter. It's, it's mentioned as 42 months, and in Daniel chapter 7, it's t- spoken of as a time, times in the dividing of times, or 1,260 prophetic days, which equal years. So the, this mortal wound was inflicted in 1798, and that was the year Napoleon's general, Berthier, went down into Vatican City where he took the Pope captive. The Pope was put in exile, 
And thus the power of Vatican, of the Vatican, was stripped away in that same year. This is a prophecy that we just read in verse 3 and 10 of when the papacy received its deadly wound. Now, we see another beast coming up on the prophetic picture, and we read that in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. So just hold it right there. We'll get to the rest of the verse in just a moment. Here we see another beast coming on the prophetic scene. What does a beast represent again in Bible prophecy? A beast represents a nation. That's exactly right. Or a kingdom. That's exactly right. We can know some things about this nation when we review and when we read this text. First of all, we know that this power rises around the year 1798. How do we know that? Because in verse 10, we're told here that the beast was receiving a deadly wound. He was, the Pope was going into captivity in 1798. And then John sees another beast coming up out of the earth around the same time. So the first identifying feature we have of this power is that this beast, this nation, would arise or would emerge around 1798 UC. Verse 11 tells us also that this beast would rise up out of the what? Out of the sea or out of the earth? would rise up out of the earth. Now, according to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, the Bible says that the seed, waters, represents peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Uh, peoples, people groups, uh, large populated areas. And so this particular nation would be coming up not out of the sea, out of heavily or densely populated uh, places, but out of a sparsely populated or comparatively unpopulated area where there were no masses of people. This is where the second nation would come up from. Now, the Bible also says in verse 11 that it had two horns like a, a lamb. Now, when you read in the book of Revelation about a lamb, generally it is referring to Jesus Christ, except this particular time. This time, it's talking about something else, something that is going to be Jesus-like or lamb-like. The other nations have horns, and when you read, they have horns with crowns on them. They have crowns on them, you see. And wherever we see a crown, we understand that, that that ruling power has a monarchy. And so the third identifying feature of this particular beast power, this nation that comes up out of the earth, it has no crowns, therefore we can understand that this nation has no monarchy. It has no king. All right. And unlike those other beasts of Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 that were beasts of prey, this particular animal is not a beast of prey. It doesn't subjugate other great world powers on its way to prominence. This, this nation does not conquer any other great nations that were ruling at the time. And so this, power, this, this nation comes to power somewhat peacefully, somewhat peacefully, when compared to how these other nations arose in power. There would, no be, there would not be any worldwide conflict as there were when these other nations were rising to power. So here you have your four identifying features of this second beast power of Revelation chapter 13. So as we look at this this morning, we must be convinced from what the Bible says that there is only one nation on planet Earth, that we can possibly meet these identifying characteristics. I would say, based upon the Word of God, it says geographic, geographically, religiously, politically, that this nation can be none other than the United States of America. There can be no other nation that this second beast power refers to. Now, when it, was, when it rose to power, it was, it, uh, it was known as the New World. It was a haven for people that were seeking new life, for people seeking escape from religious persecution and was founded on the great principles of civil and religious liberty and freedom. But between then and now, a great change has taken place in this, this wonderful country. And I'm not going to tell you here today that this nation still isn't great. This nation is great. But it's not the nation it used to be. It's not the same as George Washington left behind or James Madison left behind or Thomas Madison, Thomas Jefferson rather, left behind. There's been a change in this nation and I'm sure you can clearly see what I'm referring to. You see, this nation stands for freedom. And with freedom, as we've discussed earlier, comes responsibility. Thankfully, in this country, you are free. 
You are free to do as, as ever you, you get free to do as ever you please uh, within the confines of the law, of course. You're free to fly a plane just as long as you don't take that plane and fly it into something. You're free to, uh, to have cell phones and you're free to use those cell phones and you're free to take pictures and selfies and, and unfortunately people unfortunately take those pictures and they do the most vile and reprehensible things that end up being circulated all over the internet with them. With freedom always, however, comes responsibility. This nation was a refuge for those who wanted to worship God and now it has turned into a paradise for those who do not want to worship God. Furthermore, these same individuals want to get in the way and oppose those who do want to worship God. You see, there's a change that has taken place in this great nation. Forces that are directly opposed to the gospel of God have infiltrated, it seems, every level of society. Today's society is corrupted by immorality, uh, and immorality with that gets you notoriety, and notoriety gets you on television, and getting on television makes you rich. Even if you are morally bankrupt, you are rewarded right here in the United States. Anything goes on TV, just as long as it doesn't get in the way of the ratings. And the fault simply doesn't lie with Hollywood and the networks. You see, this is a nation filled with individuals, filled with people who consume this type of thing. They don't react to things that not long ago would have thought of, we would have thought of being scandalous, you see. You see, there's a change that is taking place. Popular mu music which makes its way to the top of the charts, glorifies immorality and even murder. This is the tragic age in which we live. People seem to have no shame anymore. And so we ask the question this morning, what on earth has happened to America? I'll tell you, since this nation has come into existence, God has been chased out of the classrooms. God has been chased out of the courtroom. And worst of all, God has been chased out of most family living rooms and we and have erected uh, their own home altars uh, to gods of their own devisings. This nation, essentially, in general terms, has forgotten the one who has made it great. Speaking in general terms, as a nation, we have forgotten God. Many people see that the only solution for this nation, even this planet, is to return to the one who once made it, who made it great. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, when all, uh, and rather when, and it goes on to say, but sin is a reproach to any people. And when a nation is down and when individual doesn't have any hope, the best thing to do certainly is turn to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, you see. If this nation could find its soul again and turn to God, we might see some things turn around. I wish we could tell you today, or I could tell you today, that things are going to get better, that this nation will find its soul, but I have read in the Bible, and the Bible tells another story. The Bible predicts a tremendous change that would come over these United States. Look with me at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and what happens? And he spoke like a dragon. A great change comes over this nation. Now, it speaks like a dragon. Who does the dragon represent? Satan, that's right. In Revelation chapter 12, uh, the dragon is represented there. It rep represents Satan, the devil, you see. Uh, Jesus says, and by the way, how does, uh, how does a nation speak? Or how do we speak? How would there be a change? How do we speak? Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here is a prediction in the Bible that there is going to be a change at the heart of this nation, of this lamb-like nation, which now speaks or is going to speak as a dragon. Speak as though it is an emissary of the enemy of souls. Now, how does a nation speak? How does the United States nation, how does this nation speak? We speak through our legislature. That's right through our laws, through its legal assembly. So if we understand that the nation is going to speak as a dragon, according to what the Bible says, there will be laws that will be passed and mandated that would reflect a change at the very heart of this nation. We see here a prediction in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11 that the new world, the United States of America, this new world is going to revert back to the old world. 
Look with me at Revelation 13, verse 12. We go on and we keep reading. And he, he, that is this nation, he exercises all the authority of who? The first beast in his presence. Now that first beast we understand to be whom? Vatican City or the Church of Rome. That's right. Let's continue reading. Verse 13, verse uh, 12 rather, and the second part. He exercises all the authority of the first beast and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Whose deadly wound was healed. Now, what's another word for cause? Force, right? Another word for cause is force. This means, it means coercion or it forces the nations of the earth to turn back and worship the first nation, the first beast. According to what we read in the Bible, in some way, the U.S., the United States of America, will impose enforced laws that will relate to the worship of or, the, or obedience to the Vatican. And who is behind the Vatican? We're told that that beast received its authority and power from whom? Satan, that's exactly right. The devil, this is his great counterfeit system. And I want to say this for the, in the hearing of somebody, just in case you misunderstand here today. This is not a, this is not a denouncement upon anyone who attends uh, that church, anyone who belongs to that church. God is dealing here with a system, a system that appears to be good on the outside, but is doing things opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It appears to follow Jesus, but it also has has things that are opposed to Jesus. You have, instead of the Bible, you've got tradition. Instead of the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary, you've got, uh, you've got the Eucharist and the Mass. Instead of this, the Holy Sabbath day, you've got Sunday worship, you see, a counterfeit that they established and that they set up. Instead of uh, sleep in death, you've got the promulgation and the teaching of the immortality of the soul. Instead of, uh, instead of, instead of uh, hellfire being an annihilation, you have the concept of the eternally burning hell. And so although it appears to be good, it undermines the Bible and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the Bible predicts that this nation will pass laws that will cause this nation and the rest of the world to wander after and follow and worship the beast. And in so doing, they will end up worshiping who? The devil. Now, isn't that what the devil has always wanted? The devil never comes out on the... uh, out in the open and says, hey, I'm, a, I'm the devil, I'm a deceiver, and I'm about to deceive you. He doesn't hand out business cards, you know that. He doesn't do that. He works through systems and, and things to get his way. Now, back in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, Lucifer, that once covering cherub, he said, I want to be like the Most High, and that's been his agenda all along. And through this beast power, in the end of time, the devil is seeking to get what he could not get in heaven, and he's going to try to get that here on planet Earth, and he's going to do that through the beast power. And he's going to do that through the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 that will cause everyone to follow and worship after the first beast. Now, we ought not be too terribly surprised by any of this because in recent years, the United States has forged very strong ties with Vatican City. The Bible says that the U.S. will use its power to elevate the papacy and put her back in the place she once occupied when she reigned supreme in the world. According to the Bible, an act of worship will be enforced. What is the act of worship? Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Notice what the Bible says. He causes all, both small and great, doesn't matter, doesn't matter who you are, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a what? A mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. There isn't any confusion over what the mark of the beast is. The second nation, the United States, is going to enforce upon the entire world a mark of allegiance, a mark of obedience to the first nation that we read about in Revelation 13, Vatican City, the papacy. Now, we're essentially, we're wading into some pretty deep waters here and getting into topics that the Bible has spoken about for over 2,000 or for about 2,000 years. These are the sorts of subjects people have studied and wondered about for years. Truth is, as we discover, more exciting than fiction, and some may even say stranger than fiction. What does the Bible also tell us in verse 14? Let's take a look. 
Verse 14, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to do what? Make an image to the beast, make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. What is the image to the beast that is going to be erected, that is going to be established? Well, when you look in the mirror and you see, uh, look in the mirror, what do you see? You see an image of yourself reflected there, a likeness, the sameness of yourself there. The Bible says that there will be an image erected that will reflect or look like the first beast. It won't be the beast, but it will look a lot like the first beast. What is that image? Well, we understand that the first beast of Revelation 13 is essentially a conglomeration of church and state. It is a union of church and state. The Bible is telling us, friends, that again, church and state are going to unite. The Vatican is going to provide the influence and spiritual authority, and the U.S. is going to back it up with civil power. Now, understand that recent, the recent rise of the Vatican has been breathtaking. I'm going to just step back a little bit, and we're going to move forward, and we're going to look at some other things here. The Holy See continues to play an important role uh, uh, as a diplomatic force while maintaining formal relations with 100 and 80 countries of the world, a number that is only surpassed by the United States. Century-old barriers preventing the unity between the mother church and her children are being removed, and Protestants are making incredible compromises. At the, as a result of the Second Vatican Council, I'm going to step back and move forward, Second Vatican Council, the Lutheran-Roman Catholic Dialogue began culminating in the joint statement on the doctrine of justification by faith in 1983 and the joint declaration on justification in 1999. Martin Luther would be rolling in his grave if he knew. In 1999, the London's Daily Telegraph newspaper reported the Pope was recognized as the overall authority in the Christian world by an Anglican and Roman Catholic commission which described him as a, quote, gift to be received by the churches. Now, that's a breathtaking historical departure from where the church, churches were some years ago. In 2004, another his, historic ecumenical event occurred, the formation of the Christian Alliance called Christian Churches Together in the United States. And the goal of the organization is to enable all churches to grow closer together in Jesus, not necessarily in the truth of God's Word, in order to strengthen the Christian witness in the world. It sounds good. It sounds good, but it's somewhat deadly. In 2005, we also read what Billy Graham said of the Pope. He called him unquestionably the most influential voice for morality and peace in the world during the last 100 years. And he also called the Pope, the moral, the then Pope, the moral conscience of the West. You can read that in Newsweek, April 11. And when Pope John Paul II died, accolades praising him came in from all over the world. And we know that at his funeral, kings and queens, prime ministers and presidents from all, from about a hundred nations were in attendance. And uh, even Prince Charles of Great Britain even postponed his wedding to attend the event. What we see, friends, is Christianity and the world at large running to embrace the papacy. What Pope John Paul II started, Pope Benedict continued with full vigor as has Pope Francis, affectionately known as the People's Pope. In 2014, you remember at a Kenneth Copeland Ministries, Minister's Convention, where hundreds of Pentecostal pastors from across the United States assembled, Pope Francis gave a stirring appeal in favor of Christian unity. It appeared the message was well received by these charismatic ministers. Prior to the Pope's video message, late Tony Palmer, an Anglican bishop, warned the, crowd, warned the crowd up by telling them that the Protestant Reformation was over and that the basis of Christian unity was not doctrine, but merely love for one another. In July of 2014, Zenit reported that Pope Francis had appointed a new, consult, new consultants to the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. In the same month of the same year, Pope Francis became the first pope to visit a Pentecostal church. 
pressing his outreach to evangelicals to represent Catholic, Catholicism's greatest competition for Christian souls around the globe. In the same month, July 30, Zenit reported that the head of the World Evangelical Alliance applauded Pope Francis's meeting with Pentecostals in Italy and responded to the Pope's apology for a lack of understanding by Catholics with their own request for forgiveness for evangelicals who have discriminated against Catholics. Over recent years, the World Evangelical Alliance, which represents some 650 million Christians around the world, has had growing interaction with Vatican and the Catholic Church, recently concluding their second official theological dialogue. Now, in December of that same year, that was just last year in Christianity Today, the featured article was entitled, Why Everyone Loves the Pope. And then USA Today reported that Pope Francis would make an unprecedented address to the United States Congress on September the 24th during his visit to the U.S. According to the U.S. House Historian's Office, no pope or official or religious leader who serves as head of state has ever addressed Congress. More on that in a minute. Now, we must understand, as we look at this through the lens of Bible prophecy, what the aim of the Vatican really is. According to Malachi Martin, Vatican insider, he, who wrote the book Keys of This Blood, uh, he said the Vatican's goal is a geopolitical structure, listen carefully, a geopolitical structure for the society of nations designed and maintained according to the ethical plans and doctrinal outlines of Christianity as taught and prom pro pro uh, propagated by the Roman pontiff as the earthly vicar of Christ. The previous pope, Benedict XVI echoed sentiments of similar sentiments of a global authority when, in response to the world financial crisis, uh, called for the formation of a true political or a true world political authority. This new authority would enforce global economic uh, environment, economic environment, and immigration policies to help construct a social order that quote conforms to the moral order. Obviously, the moral authority he was referring to was his own church. Others clearly see that the Vatican, what the Vatican is after. In a September editorial last month in Huffington Post, the heading says it all, Pope Francis wants to be president of the world. Um, the, glo the global editor for the magazine went on to say, but shrewdly, methodically, and with a showman's flair, the soft-spoken 78-year-old Argentinian uh, Jesuit priest named George Mario Bergoglio, Pope Francis, showed Thursday that he is running to become president of the planet. He did so in a congressional ceremony of secular civic pomp in a massive legislative building that, after all, harkens back to ancient Rome. As devout as he is, he go, the editor goes on to say, and as focused on the faith and practice of the Catholic Church, Francis is also campaigning to lead public, secular, political discourse worldwide. He is arguing that the two realms of faith and politics are one, and that the moral and spiritual teachings of faith should, uh, should inform and guide political decisions for our, quote, common home. So friends, as we sit here this morning, Vatican is working to establish essentially a new world order based on Vatican principles with the Vatican sitting at its head. The Bible says that that would happen 2,000 years ago, and while we are here today, the very predictions the Bible made millennia back are being fulfilled to the very letter. As we read the Bible, we understand that there will be laws passed governing worship or influencing worship. The mark of the beast will be a mark of authority enforcing in some way the worship of the beast and, will, and, uh, and, and some might even say that cannot be possible, that cannot happen in these United States. Now, we know what the mark of the beast is <clears throat> and there'll be another presentation a little later on talking about that. But some are going to say that can't be possible, that can't happen here in the United States of America. Now, not too many years ago in 2007, uh, ARDA, ARDA, uh, it's an acronym for the Association of Religious Data Archives, surveyed, uh, did a comprehensive survey of the American people about their attitude toward Christian nationalism. And uh, one question asked, to what extent do you agree or disagree 
that the federal government should defend Christian values. And uh, the, survey, the survey came up with the response, 59% of people surveyed agreed. That's nearly two out of three people in the United States. Another question, to what extent do you agree or disagree that the federal government should advocate Christian values? Guess how many people responded in the affirmative? Just under 50%, 48%, nearly one out of two people surveyed. Now, a survey some years back in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution revealed something equally interesting. The statement was made, the United States is a Christian nation and the government should make laws to keep it that way. That was the statement. How do you think people responded? In the non-South, one in every third people agreed with that statement. And we need to understand the importance of that. Some people are ready to pass laws enforcing Christianity on other people. Now, I could wish and we could wish that uh, Christian, Christianity, uh, people would be Christian and people would serve Jesus. But frankly, I'm glad that we're not in the business of enforcing a particular brand of religiousness on people who don't agree with us. We would encourage and appeal perhaps, but we would never enforce or coerce. One in three in the non-South agree that the United States is a Christian nation and the government should make laws to keep it that way. Now, in the South, it was different. One in out of every two persons living in the South said that the government ought to make laws that keep America a Christian nation. And this question belies a certain lack of understanding. You understand that the United States is not a Christian nation. The United States is simply a nation. Christianity is a prominent, yes, and prevalent, is prominent and prevalent, but that does not make it a Christian nation. You can be whatever you want, and we will respect that here in the United States. The U.S. is a nation that was founded on Christian principles, but the idea that we need to enforce Christianity here, as much as we like Christianity practiced here from sea to shining sea, is not an idea that springs from the heart of Jesus, who said, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and give to God the things that belong to God. But the idea of separating church and state in this nation is an idea whose time is just about past in the minds of many. It's one thing for the church to influence the government, but it's an entirely different thing for the government to go ahead and pass laws enforcing worship. Whenever that has happened throughout history, the result has been absolutely disastrous. Clearly, this is a nation that is ready to accept laws of a religious nature. Now, while this is going on, you'll find it very interesting that the Vatican has been saying what the Vatican has been saying. Under the title, Christian Faith Urged to Unite under, that, under the Vatican, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that the Pope, this is going back to Pope John Paul II, has called for all Christian faiths to be unified under the banner of the Vatican for the first time in a thousand years. However, he stopped short of suggesting his primacy as leader of the world's one billion Catholics. Uh, let me say that again. However, he stopped short of suggesting his primacy as leader of the world's one billion Catholics could be relinquished, underlying the view held within the church's leadership that unity would be under the papacy. That's what he said. That's what was reported. Did you get that? Come back together. Let's put the, let's, let's all come back together. Let's all come back under the church of Rome. Let the church of Rome, let the Vatican be number one. We see the time is coming when the Bible says that that is going to be so. And now you understand that the political machinery has already been turning to bring this about. The Vatican is dedicated to bringing this about. In October 25, 2015, Gulf News ran this headline, Pope Benedict steps up drive for Christian unity. It said, since he became Pope, Benedict has set the promotion of Christian unity as a main goal of his papacy and called several times for a new dialogue with Orthodox Christians and Protestants. Christianity Today in March 2013 ran an article entitled A Pope for All Christians as the World Waited for the Election of a New Pope After Benedict Resigned. The article said, one consequence of globalization is that the walls that have long divided Catholics from Orthodox, mainline Protestants, Evangelicals and, and, Protest and Pentecostals are eroding. Relations between Catholics and Protestants are warmer than ever. And then Zenit 
reported about Pope Francis's call for unity among Christians back in June of 2013. It said he emphasized the need for unity among all Christian communities, saying that in order for the body to live, all its limbs must be united. Unity, he exclaimed, is beyond all conflict. So even if you didn't hear about this, it's not going to be done in a vacuum. The papal administration is very, very committed to their agenda. In February of 2015, CNS News interviewed evangelical pastor Rick Warren, who leads the eighth largest church here in the United States, Saddleback Church, and he's the author of the hugely popular book, The Purpose Driven Life. According to the article, he said that Protestants and Catholics must form a unity of missions to defend the sanctity of life, sex, and the family, stressing that, quote, if you love Jesus, we're all on the same team. In terms of unity among Protestants and Catholics, Warren said, now there's, still, now there's still real differences, no doubt about that, but the most important thing is, if you love Jesus, we're all on the same page. He went on to say, the unity that I think we would see, realistically, is not a structural unity, but a unity of mission. Friend, the Bible is very, very clear. We can all see how the world is rapidly declining morally and spiritually. You don't have to look too far to realize that this world is not your grandfather's world. Evident, eventually, people are going to be looking for solutions. We can all agree, surely, that the only solution to this world's problems that will be real and lasting is a spiritual solution. There's no doubt about that. If the world returned to God, that would be great. That would be wonderful. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Eventually, laws are going to be passed mandating people return to the principles of Almighty God. And instead of these laws actually fixing the problem, things will only get a whole lot worse. You can't, you can imagine it can't, uh, you can imagine what it's going to be like. Let's pass laws that will cause people to honor God. As noble as that idea seems, it seems ultimately that this idea will simply lead to dishonoring God and His law and instead cause people to honor and obey the first nation of Revelation chapter 13. The time, friends, is not far off. Already the two nations have been working together. When the wall came down in Berlin, who did Time magazine credit with bringing it down? The fact of the matter is the former president, Ronald Reagan, and Pope John Paul II worked together to bring down communism. The Vatican and the U.S. worked together. And, uh, and so you can see how the nations working together can influence other nations. Is the Vatican being looked to for guidance and leadership in the world by the world's major political figures today? Yes, they are. President Bush had this to say at the opening of the Pope John Paul II Cultural Center in March of 2001. He said, few imagine the course his life would take or the history his life would shape. This is not a Pope from Poland. This is a Pope from Galilee. The best way to honor Pope John Paul II, truly one of the great men, is to take his teaching seriously, is to listen to his words and put his words and teaching into action here in America. This is a challenge, he went on to say, that we must accept. And it's interesting, in October, October 2013, in an editorial piece in the, United, in the USA Today a newspaper, former U.S. ambassador to the Vatican and author of the book The Global Vatican wrote the following... The U.S. must embrace the Holy See. Francis Rooney said, No institution on earth has both the international stature and the global reach of the Holy See. The United States and the Holy See remain two of the most significant institutions in world history, one a beacon of democracy and progress, the other a sanctum of faith and allegiance to timeless principles." He went on to say that the Holy See is at once a universally recognized sovereign, representing more than a billion people, one-seventh of this world's population, and the civil government of the smallest nation on the earth. But it has greater reach and influence than most nations. Friends, the Bible said it long ago that Vatican City would come back and occupy center stage, and in the minds of many thinking people, she's already back. She's already returned. There shouldn't be a person on planet Earth who after coming to terms with what the Bible has predicted and who sees the steady and ever-widening influence of the Vatican along with the marked global strength of America and the intermittent collaboration of these two nations 
cannot ignore where this thing is heading. We are right on track, my friends. We are right on track. We know what happened here, September 24, 2015. For the first time in American history, a Pope of Rome addressed the lawmakers of this nation. This was huge. This was huge, but not in the way some people are suggesting. For just a few moments as I seek to wrap up now, I hope you'd just permit me to share just a few reflections with you. First, I know this will frustrate some when I say this, but the Pope's coming to America did not spell the immediate end of all things. It's not going to immediately usher in the mark of the beast. The stock market isn't going to crash as was predicted back in September. We've already passed the date. It didn't happen. The seven last plagues are not going to fall tomorrow. Now, are these things going to happen? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Actually, we're reminded that national apostasy will be followed by national ruin. When the mark of the beast is established, then the economic bottom is going to fall out from underneath these United States, you see. Not prior to the mark of the beast enforcement, but as a result of mark of the beast enforcement. The stage is set. There's no doubt about that. $18 trillion in debt. Is there really a way out of that? Is there a way out of that? Not really. The experts will tell us that. But the, the coming of the Pope does not equal the coming of catastrophe, at least not yet. It's coming, but it's not going to happen immediately. It's going to continue to, continue to unravel. Second, the second thing I'd like to share, what we witnessed was huge on several, from several different perspectives, several different reasons. Number one, we didn't think we would ever see the Pope invited to address the country's lawmakers. Our prophetic scenario, friends, is rolling right along as predicted or foretold. What we witnessed is affirming and should be affirming to our faith in God and His Word. We ought to be strengthened by what is happening and not disheartened. We ought to be drawing nearer to Jesus for what we are witnessing. This time, this is not a time for us to fear, but a time to gain courage and to make a recommitment to Jesus Christ, to make every day our calling and our election sure. That's what these things tell us, you see. Secondly, I understand that the Pope was invited by the lawmakers to address Congress. This tells me that what he has to say is considered to be highly important by some of our leading men and women of this nation. That they are lawmakers should remind us of John's prediction that this nation would end up speaking like a dragon, that this nation would have a change of heart and pass laws that would trample on the consciences of people. Not saying that that's going to happen a couple of weeks from now, just saying that the table is set, it's happening as God predicted, and it's going to continue to move in that direction. Number three, never has Congress opened the door, opened its floor to a leader of another church or another religion. Never, never. Well, some might say the Pope is just a religious man, but head of his state. And that would be absolutely true. That's, sure, that's for sure. The problem is that he is head of both. He's head of both. And I would say primarily the religious head. This is problematic from a prophetic standpoint for a couple of reasons. Again, no, one, no other religious leader has been invited to be addressed, to address the Congress. Why the head of the Vatican? Why not the president of the Baptist church? Why not the president of the Lutheran church? Why not the president of any church for that matter? What did John the Revelator say? All the world wondered after the beast. Also, it's disturbing that the head of a church state enterprise would be allowed to address the House of Representatives of a nation that believes in the separation of church and state as outlined by the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. As I listened to and as I read the pontiff's address, I couldn't help notice the number of times he alluded to, insinuated, or stated the idea of togetherness, oneness, and commonness with these United States. He said, I would like to think that the reason for this is that I am too a son of this great continent from which we have all received so much and toward which we share a common responsibility. He said in his address, we must move forward together 
as one. And he goes on to say, for the common good. What is the common good of all, according to the Vatican? I want to thank my friend, Pastor Steve Wahlberg, for sharing this. He pulled this from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, page 528. What is the common good of all? The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, sanctifying Sundays requires a common effort. In respecting religious liberty and the common good of all, Christians should seek recognition of Sunday as a legal holiday. What does prophecy have to say? Is it possible that this is what the Vatican is truly after? What we've got coming, friends, is a subtle argument. Extremely subtle. As any good counterfeit does, it always runs very closely to the genuine thing. An image to the beast is going to be formed. According to the Bible, again, church and state will one day unite. Worship will be the main issue. Will you worship God in spirit and in truth, or will you follow the teachings and traditions of men? We've seen it before in the Bible, and we're going to see it again. Friends, what I've shared with you today are really harbingers of hope. I want to just read a verse for you found in Luke chapter 21 as we close now. Luke chapter 21. These are harbingers of hope. We've shared this today not to distress anyone, not to cause fear to come to your heart. We've not shared these things with you today for you to panic and to freak out. We've shared the, the, the steady progression of events as prophecy has declared them so that your faith will be strengthened, so that your heart might be cheered, that you might know that we are on the road, on the way to that eternal kingdom when Jesus will return. Luke chapter 21, verse 26 through 28. Notice what Jesus said. Luke chapter 21, verses 26 to 28. Did I get that right? I did. He said, men's hearts, talking about the days and age in which we live, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. Is he talking about those in the church? Is he talking about God's people following him, staying connected to Jesus, following his word? No, the church shouldn't be free. Now I would say, if you're outside of Jesus... I would say that if you don't have his word hidden in your heart, if, I would say that if you are not connected to Jesus, then you ought to fear. You ought to fear what's coming upon this world. That's what Jesus said. People are, are filled with fear today, looking for the things that are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, then they will see the sign of son, the sign, uh, see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, what did Jesus say? Bury your head in the sand, cower in fear, be disheartened and discouraged, be panic-stricken. What did Jesus say? What did he say right there in those verses? He said, now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because, friends, your redemption draws nigh. Friends, all these things are not harbingers of fear. These are harbingers of hope. Jesus Christ is coming back again soon. It's not far. I don't know exactly when. Not going to set a date. Not going to tell you exactly when that's going to be. Can't. No man knows the day or the hour. But we can know from what we've been studying, from what we read. And there's more. There's more. You've got to go to that powerful book, The Great Controversy, and you've got to read those chapters, The Impending Conflict, uh, Liberty of Conscience Threatened, and all those others that talk about these things in greater detail. These things are coming upon the world and they shouldn't strike heart in the fear of you or I, you or me. They should cause us to hope. Hope in the one who loves us. Hope in the one who died to save us. Hope in the one who's coming back again. It should cause us to know the hour in which we live and to be in more earnest about doing the work that God has given us to do. To be in more earnest about the ministry he's called us each to perform. To be in more earnest about sacrificing our time, our talents and our treasures to the cause and to the work of God. Friends, today, today, won't you lift up your heads? Won't you lift up your heads in hope, in recognition that Jesus Christ is coming soon? We're going to sing a closing hymn here today. It's called Look for the Waymarks. It's an old hymn, but it talks about looking for those 
those events that the Bible predicts, knowing that they're coming, knowing that they're here, and knowing our duty as a, res as a result of knowing the times in which we live. So we're going to sing that hymn at this time. Ninety-six. Look for the waymarks. This has been such an important message and I don't want to end the service without making a, an appeal and calling for anyone here today who's not made that decision in their heart to follow Jesus Christ all the way. Maybe you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, but really He's not your Lord and you're reading in the Word of God certain things that He's asking you to do and you're not, you're not following Him. Today, if you'd like to either make a commitment to Jesus Christ for the first time or if you'd like to make a recommitment to him as Lord of your life. I'm going to invite you when we're singing the last verse to come down, stand right down here. We'll have a special prayer for you uh, right after we conclude this song. Come on down as we sing the, uh, the closing verse of this hymn. Thank you so much. Invite, uh, invite our pastors or our elders to come and stand by these precious people here today just to show your support if you don't mind and uh, we'll pray for them in a special way. Let's pray together. Eternal Lord, we've shared a lot of information here today. This has been a big, big sermon, a big message. But you're a big God and you can uh, help us take the information we've received and work through it and process it and receive it fully into our hearts and into our lives to the extent that we know that we are close to home, to the extent that we know that Jesus is coming soon, to the extent that we will allow the Spirit of God to do that finishing work in our hearts and in our lives, to the extent that we allow the Spirit of God to drive us into mission, to drive us into mission ministry, to, to use our time, talents, and treasures for the furtherance and the finishing of your work on earth. Oh Lord, there are some individuals that have come down here this morning that want to make a recommitment to you. They want to open their hearts to say yes to you as Lord and as Savior. 
and they want to say yes to you, dear Lord. And I pray that you will hear their, their cry, that you'll receive them to yourself. And may they leave here today knowing, knowing that they are your children, that you call them their son, your sons and your daughters because they've opened their hearts to you and they've received you by faith, if not for the first time, once again. May we experience that ourselves, knowing that we are your children, for we must know that we are in this day and age. We must know what it is to live as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for warning us of what is to come upon the world, and that is coming, and that is nearly here, and that is happening. Thank you, Lord, for the assurance that you'll be with us all the way through to the end. Thank you that this is a, a day of hope, a day of rejoicing because Jesus is coming soon. However, however, if there is somebody still wrestling with the decision to give over their hearts and lives to Jesus, this is not a day of hope and rejoicing. This is a day of trembling and of fear where they must, they must, must give their lives to Jesus and find themselves secure in his eternal and safe embrace and arms. Thank you, Father, for being with us during this hour. Thank you for continuing to be with us. Keep and bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.